Let's read together from Mark 1, 40 through 44. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. We will be in the second half of Mark chapter 1. Let's pray. And now, Lord God, as we open your word and we seek to study and learn from this passage today, help us to gain insight because your spirit is helping us to see and help us to learn some things. And Lord, pray that uh, some things would touch our hearts and our minds this morning that you want us to be aware of and that you want us to be practicing. So I ask that you would encourage and strengthen each of us as we dive into your word together. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. When I was in high school, I had a deep desire that developed in me to really grow in in, in my walk with the Lord. Uh, I had been uh, involved in Christian camps for many years and staff and that kind of thing. And and, uh, many times uh, summers were when I had a chance to really put some things into practice. Part of that was just it was set up in such a way that you were involved in in some things like, uh, you know, having a quiet time in the mornings. And so it was... uh, as I got into high school, I said, I need to do more. I need to be able to grow and, and, um, and, 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 and learn more about the Lord and apply things in my heart. And so there were several different um, plans that the youth pastor and some others had handed over and showed me. And, and I tried a number of them, and, and um, I found it really hard. It was, it was difficult for me, and, I, and I, don't, I didn't at that time know all of the reasons why. One plan, in fact, had me uh, reading, uh, I think it was 10 or 15 chapters a day, but it was in the New Testament a couple places, in the Old Testament a couple places, Psalms and Proverbs and all that kind of thing. And, and, and if you've done that kind of plan and it's really been something that encouraged and helped you, and I know some of my friends it has, that's wonderful. For me, it was like dumping this huge load on top of me that I could not carry. And so within a short amount of time, I was just kind of, you know, had given up all hope and thought, well, there's no hope for me. I can't, I can't make this happen. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. And guilt would come. And it, would, it kind of went on and on and on. And we're going to deal with that as we look at the passage a little bit later because there's some, passage, there's some verses here that are used many times to encourage people. Um, but I just want to let you know, I've been through that process, and I've discovered many things as I've been walking with the Lord. And, and probably the biggest one I want to, I'll just mention it here, and I'll mention it again later, is all of us don't have to do the exact same thing. That's really important to remember. The Lord works. We have an infinite God. We have an amazing Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit of God. And so there are all kinds of ways that God can touch our lives on a... On a daily basis if, if we're looking for that. So I just want to share that as we jump in. Now between Matthew one thirteen, where Jesus is 
uh, tempted in the desert, and Mark 1.14, where John the Baptist is taken into custody, um, there's one year that goes by. And if you go to the book of John, you'll find a lot of the things that happen in the book of John take place in that time period. So you've got the whole idea of uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus in John chapter 3. Uh, second part of John 3, there's a, a scene where Jesus is gaining more disciples than John, and John's disciples come and say, hey, what can we do about this? He's winning. And, G, and John the Baptist said, hey, he's supposed to. He must increase. I must decrease. And then in John 4, Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman at the well and all that thing that happened there. All of that happened between the temptation and John being put in prison, which is about a one-year time period. Just kind of to give you a sense. And if you read through the Gospels or kind of have a, I have this really neat book that's all four of them that are harmonized so that you get all of the passages kind of the way they work through. And in some places there's nothing on something, but other places all three or four of the Gospels share it. So that's one of the things to keep in mind, that uh, we're, we're going through Mark's chronology of events, Mark's pattern that he's laid out, which he's doing something very specific. John is, or Mark is presenting Jesus as the servant, as the perfect servant, the servant sent by God, the servant sent to die for the people who are hurting and, and in sin. And he wants them to see Christ, the perfect servant, as the Savior. Now, the key verse in Mark would be Mark 10:45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So as we're going through, remember, Mark's job is to get people to see Jesus as the perfect servant, the one who has come to, to serve in the way God asks him to, but to serve everybody by living, dying, and rising again and ascending into heaven. So that's where we're at, and we're going to jump right in then at uh, verse 21 of chapter 1. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Let's go ahead and put that map up there if you would. Now, the arrow at the top shows you where Capernaum is, right on, right on the Sea of Galilee. The other one is Nazareth, so you have an idea of where Jesus is from and where he lived for all of his years until he was uh, 30 years old or so. And <clears throat> then you've got that, the Sea of Galilee, and, and you've got all, a whole bunch of things take place in and around the Sea of Galilee. A whole bunch of things take place in Capernaum, and this in particular um, is, is one of them. Now, Capernaum was a didn't really know this, was a fairly good-sized town, a lot of wealth, and a lot of sin. There was a garrison of Roman soldiers that was there, and there were some other things internationally, trade routes that brought, um, brought things into Capernaum that made it a very needy place spiritually. And so when Jesus comes and begins to teach, it, it, it really opens the eyes of many people in that town. Um, <clears throat> so now Jesus has... Peter and Andrew, who he's called, and John and James with him, whom he's called to spend time with him. Um, and he goes into the synagogue and begins to teach. And, and one of the things that we discover is that they are shocked at the way he teaches. Many times what the scribes would do is they would say, well, as Rabbi so-and-so says, and then as Rabbi so-and-so responded, and then Rabbi, and they would just quote people. There was nothing in the things that they said that would say, this is what it says, and this is how we should apply it. 
That was not part of the teaching of the time. But Jesus comes along and he changes all that. Now, there's a synagogue there. One of the things we need to remember is that it was Ezra coming back from Babylon to reestablish the teaching of God's word and Old Testament law and so forth. 450 years before this, he's the one that really encouraged the start of the synagogues. He wanted any time, and matter of fact, it was set down that if there were 10 families, 10 families could have a synagogue. And a synagogue would be the place where you would go to worship on the Sabbath, but also the place where you Kids would get teaching and training in Hebrew and Old Testament law. So there were synagogues all through Galilee. The one in, Cain, in Capernaum was one of the bigger ones, and you can actually see the ruins. If you go online, they, they've got the ruins there of that particular place. And so Jesus goes to the synagogue because that's where everybody was going to be on the Sabbath. <clears throat> um, people were amazed at his teaching. Uh, he spoke clearly. He didn't quote other people. He said, this is what God says, and then he went ahead and helped them to understand it, giving the meaning of what was there. Um, verse 23, just then a man in the synagogue, so God, Jesus is up there teaching, explaining the passages that they're going through, and uh, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's interesting. The people in the synagogue didn't really have any idea of all of the fullness of who Jesus was. The demons did. They knew. They said, oh, you're, you're Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. So they knew his human heritage, and they knew fully his, his divine heritage. And they were able to say that very clearly. Now, Jesus at that point stops them, and he says, you need to be quiet, and you need to come out. And, and those two commands deliver this man from however long he had, that uh, demon living in him. Um, the evil spirit shook him, screamed, and came out. And in verse 27, and the response of the people there were, um, they were amazed and they asked each other, what, what's going on? How can this be? And then they said this, um, it's a new teaching with authority, and he even gives orders to the, to the demons, and they obey. And that just blew their minds. Because there were people who tried to do exorcisms, but there was nobody that was doing come out and the demon would leave. And so Jesus comes into the setting and, and he's doing something and showing that he has authority to teach God's word and he has authority to cast out demons. Um, now, <clears throat> this quote I came across was really, uh, I thought, a good one. By including this event, this scene, uh, the sequence here, Mark was establishing Jesus' credentials showing that even the spiritual underworld recognized Jesus as the Messiah. So when I said people didn't get it yet, they didn't understand, they didn't know who he was, the demons did. They knew. And uh, the Lord wouldn't even let them speak when, when, uh, when he was speaking to them. Now, just implication. Let's go to verse 23 again. <clears throat> A man in the synagogue possessed by an evil spirit cried out, uh, you know, what do we have to do with you, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One. And Jesus says, be quiet, come out of him, and it's over. Now, there's some observations I just want to make about this quickly. Christ's coming, as we go through the Scriptures, and especially the Gospels, Christ's coming um, aroused a great deal of opposition from the 
demonic world or from uh, the world where Satan and his demons are involved. And so if you read it and just kind of read through and you see all the different places that Jesus encountered someone who was demon-possessed, where he casts someone out, and we'll be seeing some more as we go along. My first question was, how in the world were there so many people with demons in Israel? And, of course, you come back to the point that there was 400 years of silence from God. There was not a whole lot of really good teaching, even from the priests at this point. And so you've got this, this uh, whole thing that has happened where demons have come in. But they can't handle Jesus, and Jesus certainly can handle them. So, second thing, Christ's power over evil spirits foreshadows or is a picture of, the, of his eventual triumph over Satan. And, and his eventual triumph over Satan is seen in a, in a couple of different places. When he died and rose again, that's one step of the victory over Satan. Satan could not keep him dead. And then down the road, there will be a time when he will be bound and tossed into the lake of fire. So Christ's power over evil spirits foreshadows or shows us what's coming in the eventual triumph over Satan himself. And then the last one, whenever God is at work, Satan will oppose him. And uh, maybe you've seen this happen in in a situation that, that you know of where God is doing something special and all of a sudden there's opposition of some kind. And we see it through the, through the New Testament. Now, there's a wonderful thing for us is that we have, we have the Bible now. We have the whole Scripture, and, and we have the New Testament, which explains things that, that they didn't have a chance to understand until much later. But Ephesians 6.10 says something really special, I think. When we think about uh, Satan and his power and demons and all of that kind of thing, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Isn't that awesome? You know, I I love the fact that we are, it's not us. We can't do this. But he says, be strong in the Lord. So you go to the Lord and ask for his strength and his ability to help you to stand firm in the face of whatever it is that's coming or has come. And as we stand firm, God does what he is doing and what he's working. And so I love that. Be strong in his mighty power and then stand firm. You don't have to give in to temptation. You don't have to give in to Satan's plans. You do not have to go that direction at all. We can stand firm. Now another thing that I think we need to remember here is we're not being told to attack Satan or the demons. We are told to stand firm and let God do his thing. We are to stand firm with the power and the help of God and let God take care of what he's going to do. Philippians 4.13 also gives us some encouragement along these lines. Paul says, I can do everything in my own power, my own strength, and with my own you know, cunning. No, not at all. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And, and I love the fact that, again, here Paul is saying, I can do absolutely anything if it's God doing it through me. It's not me. I don't have the power. I don't have that ability. Um, and, and if you remember this passage, he's, he's actually saying, hey, I've, I've gone hungry, and I've been cold, and I've, all these other things. I've also been prosperous. But no matter what the situation is, I have learned that I can do 
everything through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, I can stand firm against the forces of evil through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, I can live contented no matter what my situation is economically or physically because Christ is in me and I can stand firm and I can go ahead and be content whatever happens because of the work that Jesus is doing in me and through me. You ever had a situation where <clears throat> you've been in the water, maybe uh, as a young child, you're, you're in uh, the ocean and a big wave just, boom, knocked you down, and you're desperately trying to get up, and you can't get your feet under you, and you don't know if you're going to make it through this wave, and suddenly someone that's way bigger than you are and stronger and taller comes and just picks you up and lifts you out and stands you up. That's, to me, is an image of God himself saying, okay, Mark, you can't stand up against this wave, but I can. Here, stand firm. And we need to always be remembering the fight is not ours, and we can stand firm only by God's power, and we can do all things, whether it's to stand firm or be content, whatever our situation is, only because it's God doing it in us. I think that's the first implication. Let's move on to verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. So now we know that in Capernaum, Simon and Andrew have a home. We know later that Peter's mother-in-law is there, and so that means probably the whole extended family. Uh, and it's very possible that all of the time that Jesus spent in that area, when he was in, Can in, in Capernaum, that this would be their headquarters. This would be the center from where they worked. So they, they go to the home of Simon and Andrew, and Simon's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever. And, and the imagery I think that we're supposed to think of as we see this is that this is a lady who is burning up with fever. I mean, she is really sick. And so they tell Jesus about it. And, and, and you sit there and say, well, well, why would they do that? Well, you know, they tell Jesus because he can cast out demons and heal people. And so they tell him about it, and he goes in, and I love this image. So um, they told Jesus, so he, verse 31, he went to her and took her hand and helped her up. Not a word was spoken. It was the touch of the Lord Jesus, and she was healed. And then he helped her to her feet. What an incredible thing. What a, how amazing is it that, that this is the power of God and working through Jesus in this powerful situation. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing. And so uh, she gets up, and they have, you know, obviously mealtime, all those kinds of things together, and finish the Sabbath. In verse 32, after the evening sunset, so now the Sabbath is over. The Sabbath is from Friday night to Saturday night. Um, the Sabbath is over. And, and uh, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. And it's like there was this huge group of people coming to the door and just standing as a huge crowd. Um, verse 33, the whole town gathered at the door, and, and people were being carried, and people were being brought. And Jesus, verse 34, healed many who had various diseases and drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And so there's this steady stream 
constant flow. Uh, maybe the people in the front there, something would happen, there'd be a healing, and they'd kind of move out of the way, and the next group would come out. And it was just the place was packed with people wanting to come before Jesus with their need. And so they did. Um, Why did Jesus silence the demons? And I want to just give some observations here about that before we move on. I think by silencing them, Jesus proved his authority and power over them. So you've got a demon who has made life miserable for this person. In some cases, demons would not let the person speak, or they would throw them in a fire, or try to have them be injured or hurt in some other way. And, and, and they come before Jesus, and Jesus silences them, and then drives them out. They're done. And it's a clear demonstration that he has the authority to do so and the power to make it happen. So silencing the demons proved this. Another thing I think was there, he wanted to curb the enthusiasm for one of two things. Remember, we've talked about how many people were longing and waiting for the Messiah to come because they wanted him to come and kick out the Romans and to set up his kingdom. So Jesus is going through this, and, and the, it's very possible that the demons were kind of issuing and trying to get people to say, oh, yeah, we should, we should bring this guy in. As, he's got to be the Messiah. And he was not interested in being a political Messiah or a military Messiah. That's not who Jesus was. That's not what he came to be. There will be a time when he comes to judge and to rule, but this is not that time. And so as he silenced the demons, one of the things he's doing is kind of putting, putting the lid on this kind of thinking and this kind of speaking. The third one, he wanted Israel to believe that he was the Messiah based on the things that he said and the things that he did. Um, when John sent someone to say, hey, are you the one that was supposed to come? What did he send back? The word of what he was doing and saying. He was doing the miracles the Messiah was supposed to do, and he was speaking the word of God. The fourth one, Jesus wanted to reveal his identity as the Messiah on his timetable. On his timetable. Um, imagine what would have happened if in that very first year, People started declaring him the Messiah, and Jesus hadn't done all the things that needed to be done first, and the Romans then had to get involved and all kinds of other things. And, 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 and Jesus was saying, no, this, we're doing it on my timetable and in my way. And then the last one, he wanted people to understand fully that he came to die. One of the things that, that people needed to understand is, yes, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, but that doesn't mean ruling right now. It means dying right now, rising, and then coming back to set up the kingdom at a later point. And so all of that were things that Jesus had in mind as he was thinking through those kinds of things. So now at the end of this very, very full day, um, you know, the synagogue and then Peter's home and all the people afterwards, um, it describes, you know, this is a heavy, heavy day he's had. So now, very early the next morning, and I want us to think through, is this verse a description of something, or is it a prescription? In other words, is it describing something, or is it prescribing that this is something that we should all do? So look at the verse. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Okay? 
As you're sitting there thinking, okay, is it a description of something, or is this a prescription of something we all must do? And let me just suggest to you that I think it's, it's, it is a description, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But very early in the morning, Jesus goes and he does this. Um, Simon and his companions finally find him, and, and it's interesting to me because they come and say, hey, everybody's waiting for you. Let's get back, man. we got to get this thing going. And it's almost as if they're saying, come on, Jesus, let's go back. we got a crowd there waiting for you. And Jesus said, yeah, we'll go somewhere else. We'll just move on to the next place. Now, let's put up the, the, the first map, please. There we go, thanks. So at that time, Israel was divided into three things, three kind of provinces. It was Judea, it used to be Judah in the south, and then Samaria, and then Galilee up at the top. Let's go to the next one, please. And in Galilee, you've got all of this area that's encased, part of the Sea of Galilee and around down. And <clears throat> this is something I found out this week. This is a piece of area or an area that's uh, 60 miles long, 30 miles wide. Uh, and Jesus spent a lot of time in Galilee. There were 250 towns or more than 250 towns, many with synagogues in Galilee. Now, think about that. When Jesus said, well, let's go somewhere else, he got a lot of places he could go. And so they went from place to place, and he went to different towns and went to different synagogues. And, and so he wasn't just in, in, in Capernaum. And, and so one of the things that struck me was how incredible is, is that, that he just kept on going from place to place, and he traveled through all of Galilee. Now, implication. That verse, uh, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Uh, go ahead and put that up, Daryl. I, th I think, um, the, there we go. I think this passage describes something that Jesus did. Now, could it be an example for us? Sure. Could this be something that we choose to do? Absolutely. But is this a passage that says every believer, whoever lives, needs to get up while it's dark and go somewhere by themselves? No, that's not what it's saying. Now, I grew up and was in some places and in some organizations where that's how they taught it. This is what Jesus did it, so do you. You know, and it was here's here it is, and you gotta go through all these steps and you gotta do all these things. And and again, please hear me when I when I say that if this was something that was very meaningful to you and, and it was something that you enjoyed, great, praise God. For me, it was extremely difficult and hard to go through that kind of a thing. Um, but it's an example. We could choose to follow it. Um, I believe the Bible does encourage us to spend time alone with God. I just don't think there's one single, simple way that we are all supposed to do that. And I think that's important for us to realize, because as I was growing up and desperately longing to draw closer to God, I was presented, well, this is the method, this is how you have to do it, or this is the one, or this is the one, and, and there was a whole bunch of really good ways of doing things. I not put any of them down, but none of them were for me, did anything for me like I longed for them to do. And, 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 and there's some reasons for that I'll, I'll, I'll just share in a moment. But I, I believe the Bible's full of examples of people who spent time seeking God. You see that in many of the prophets and, and David and others as well. I do not think there is only one way, one timetable, or one method. Okay? I don't believe that that's the case. Um, 
There are things that, that I, I have real close friends that do the Bible in the year and a few other things, and they love it, and it's meaningful and helpful to them. Uh, for me, if you try to get me to have to read through the whole Bible in a year in that kind of a system, I, never, I was never able to do it because I would start reading and I'd get behind and it just never was able to do that. Now, here's some things that, uh, that for me have worked down through the years and for others. Um, I've developed several different techniques or ways that I do my time with the Lord. And sometimes while I'm driving, I'll listen to a sermon of someone else. And just listening and hearing, um, because of some reading difficulties I have, auditory is really important to me, so hearing something is important. Uh, other times, I'll read a devotion book, like uh, Alistair Begg's got a, one for every day. And, and um, there's a whole bunch of people out there, really good people that have devotion books. Um, one of the things I'm really enjoying is our Daily Bread has a, our Daily Bread app, and I don't have to take the time to read it, but I can turn it on, and they read it to me, and they share the passage, and, and, and you can go back and forth if you missed a day and pick up those days. I, I really, really have been enjoying that. The other thing is, of course, you can pick up the little booklet, The Daily Bread, uh, and that's another way of doing something if that's what you'd like to do. Someone once suggested that you pick an application or something from uh, the sermon on Sunday and, and think about that during the week. As you start the day or having a lunch break, take some time to think about that. Um, at times, I'll read systematically through a book of the Bible, and I will read very slowly. And when I see something that's meaningful that God has touched my heart with, then I will stop and try to make it into one sentence so that I can take that one thought with me all day long. And, and then the other thing I've been doing is putting it in my phone in a little place that I've got so then I can go back and look at it. Or if I want somebody to just sit down and look at all of the central truths, is what I call it, all the central truths that I've seen uh, that God has showed me this year, and just think about them again. Uh, that's another thing to do. Sometimes there's a song that is so powerful with so much scripture background to it that I, I have to listen to it and then I read it and then I'll think about it and meditate on the words of that song. Um, there's lots of journaling ways. I've done a little bit of journaling in my time too and I've, I've always enjoyed that. Uh, I hope what you're hearing is there's a lot of different ways that we can come and seek to spend some time with God. Okay, I, That's really the biggest thing I want to get across. Um, you're not going to find anywhere in the Bible, not even in Leviticus, where there is a list of things you must do every single day in order to be close to God. It's just not there. You will see time after time people who draw close to God. David did it all night long sometimes and through the night watches. And there's others that did other things. Um, one of the things that I think I've been impressed with is I already mentioned we have Bibles, we have the Holy Spirit, we have creativity that God has given us, and we can take those things and begin something that is helpful for us to be able to approach God. Now, I'm going to go back to my, my own struggles real quick. Um, I discovered many years later that I had a, a, a mild reading disability. And it's really interesting because I love to read, and I read all the time, and I enjoy reading, but I read, I discovered, three to four times slower than the average person. So imagine taking that and trying to get through 15 chapters in a day. It wasn't going to happen. But a paragraph, 
man, I spend my time there and think about it and apply it and all those kinds of things. So, so for me, those programs which are wonderful for other people just never worked for me. And so I began to adapt and look for and do other things. I think the point is, how are you seeking God? It's something that you need to, to be doing in, in your timetable and in your way. And, and there is no little verse that says, okay, it's got to be this way. It's just not there. So, final thought here. I, it, there's no way that we have a verse that tells all believers to have a daily quiet time or devotion time with God. That's, that you're not going to find that kind of wording or that kind of thinking. But we do have many, many verses all through the Scripture where God invites us to draw near, where God invites us to come to Him, to spend time with Him. James 4, 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And I think the thought then comes down to how the how and the how often God leaves to us to work through. And if someone comes along and says, man, you got to do it this way or you're a bad Christian, say, thank you, God bless you. And just keep on doing what God's leading you to do. Okay, so again, I found devotions for many years one of those things that was always in my list of failures until I really learned that it was about seeking God. And there's lots of ways to do that and lots of time, time periods to do that. So the last section of these verses, uh, starting in verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, understand, this guy broke all the laws, right? I mean, he was supposed to stand way back and yell, unclean, unclean, don't come in here. So that's not what he did. He came running up to Jesus, and I don't know if he did the soccer slide on the knees or what, but here he is kneeling before Jesus. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> anyway, so he, he, there he is kneeling in front of Jesus, really close. And, and essentially what he says to Jesus is, I know you have the power to do this, I just don't know if you want to. I know that you can. Will you? That's the question. And on one level, think about the faith here. This man is saying, I believe that you have the power from God to take away this hideous disease that I have. What an incredible, incredible thing. I love Jesus' answer. And let me just mention this. For many people, a person with leprosy was considered to be a walking corpse. And you did not want to be around dead things. That would make you ceremonially unclean, and you'd have to go through a whole process to get right again. And so filled with compassion, what a great statement. Uh, Jesus, filled with compassion, reaches out his hand and touches him. What? I mean, you know, you touch an unclean thing, and what happens? You become unclean. That was a, they argued that all through the law. You know, don't, don't go and touch unclean things because then you're going to be unclean. Well, it didn't work that way with Jesus, did it? He was pure and clean and ceremonially clean and everything. Reached out and touched the leper who was unclean, ceremonially unclean. Touched him. It didn't change Jesus a bit, did it? But it made him clean. That's the power that Jesus had. So he comes, Jesus lays his hand on him, and he's clean. 
And, and think about this. What must it have been like for this guy? Many lepers lived in total isolation or so far away from other people that, that it was difficult to even have any kind of a normal life. And, and, and here he comes to Jesus, and Jesus is the first person who has touched him in who knows how many years. And that's Jesus saying, yeah, I'm willing. You're clean. And that, that imagery is really powerful. So, verse 43, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. Don't go broadcasting this to the whole world. Go to the priests and show yourself. That's what the law required. You've been cured? Great. Go and prove it by seeing the priest. Have them examine you. Offer the sacrifice you're supposed to offer. And then people will know that you're totally clean and free of this disease. But he didn't do that. Instead, verse 45, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news and what's the result? Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. And what does it say? People still came from everywhere. Um, what an amazing, amazing thing. Jesus warns them not to broadcast. He does it anyway. He, you know, um, he, it's interesting because he says to him, I want you to go to the, to the priests, show yourself, but it's a testimony to them. It's a testimony to them if you go and they look at you and say, yes, he's clean. And this is a calling card from Jesus. He comes to the priests and they say, hey, you're clean. How did this happen? Jesus of Nazareth healed me. And that's like saying, oh, ding, 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 ding. Something really powerful is going on with Jesus. He's incredible. He um, can touch a leper and make him clean. What's our takeaway? Go to verse 40 again. I'm going to read it from the New Living. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I'm willing. Be healed. Again, remember the You've got the example of the surgeon who's scrubbed and he's all gown and everything, and, and he's clean. I mean, he's sterile. He can go in and do whatever he needs to do in the surgery. But if he touches someone else who's not sterile, shakes hands with somebody on the way into the surgery, he has to go star all over and take all the stuff off, scrub again, put all brand new stuff. Because the dirty makes the clean dirty, except when it comes to Jesus. Jesus trumps leprosy sin, whatever. I love the fact that Jesus did not say to him, go clean up your life, walk in the way you're supposed to, then come and see me. No, not what he said. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus said, I'm willing. Be clean. And, and we can hang on that truth. Jesus looks at us and sees who we are and how messed up we are many times. And he still loves us, still cares for us. And when we struggle and maybe done some things or said some things that, that aren't things we should have done or said, we come humbly to him and say, Lord, I, I confess. This is, this is what I've done. And he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. 
All week long as I've studied this passage, this uh, poem came to mind. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought scarcely worth his time to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? One dollar, a dollar, then two, only two, two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward, picked up the bow, wiped the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings. He played a melody, pure, and sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music stopped, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. $1,000, who'll make it two? 2000 and who'll make it three? 3,000 once, 3,000 twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered. But some of them cried, we don't understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with his life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd much like the old violin, a mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once and going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's brought by the touch of the master's hand. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a, a sense that you really need that touch from God, that you need his hand to guide you or lead you. Let's just take a second and bow your head and if there's something that you want God to do or something that you need, just tell him. You can pray and ask for the master to, to touch and to help and to guide and to lead. Lord God, we are so thankful that we can come to you with anything that's on our heart, any pain, any hurt, any struggle. And you don't drive us away. You welcome us. And your spirit convicts us, challenges us, but draws us back to you. So Lord God, for myself in this next week and for my brothers and sisters here, Give us that heart that longs for you, no matter what. And it's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. And I was ready to go. <laughs> I forgot we had communion here. Yeah, get... <clears throat> Thank you.
John 3.16, uh, let's go ahead and put that first verse up there. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I love the way that that's put. Uh, he loved the world. And let me show you the way the wor- he loved the world. He sent Jesus to die. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world. Boy, I'm thankful for that. Can you imagine what it must have been like, what it would be like if we didn't have a Savior offering us salvation? He did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The purpose of Jesus' coming was not judgment and condemnation. It never was that. It was always to say, you are condemned already, you're under judgment already, but I've come to give you salvation and a relationship with me. Verse 18, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son. I love the fact that we are no longer, when we come to him, we're no longer objects of wrath. We deserve God's wrath, but when we come to Jesus Christ and we are forgiven, the wrath of God's removed. We will not face the wrath of God. Jesus took the wrath of God for us when he died for us. So we are objects of mercy. That's a much better thing than an object of wrath. So we celebrate the forgiveness of Jesus and we remember him through the bread and the cup. They're the symbols that he's given us to remember his body broken and his blood shed. Let's go ahead and uh, sing a couple of verses of how deep the Father's love. I'm going to pray first so that then we can sing and then we'll take the, the bread together. Lord God, we are so thankful for the fact that you sent Jesus and that through Jesus we can get out from under the condemnation we so rightly deserved. And thank you for the blessing of having forgiveness and a relationship with you. And so as we take the bread this morning, we take it remembering the cost to you so that we could be your children, so that we could call, um, call God our own. And so we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.